Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If the events of the last 18 months have demonstrated anything, it's that the institution of the state can, should it choose, still have a profound influence over almost every aspect of our lives. Through lockdowns, furlough schemes or vaccination programmes, states all over the world, no matter their form, have demonstrated an abiding capacity to coerce us, control us, limit our freedoms and manage our economies whether for our own protection, the protection of others, or the protection of the state itself. But on whose authority do they operate, and with what legitimacy? In Confronting Leviathan, David Runciman tells the story, or at least a story, of the ideas that lay behind the modern state, how the relationship between citizens and governors was shaped by Thomas Hobbes's 1651 masterpiece, and how his thought has been variously applied and challenged ever since. It's a story not only of 12 exceptional thinkers, from Wollstonecraft through Tocqueville, Constant, Marx, Gandhi, Fanon, Arendt and Fukuyama, among others, but also very, very possibly the story of an age, the modern age, our age, that began in the mid-17th century and may perhaps right now be drawing to a close. Confronting Leviathan is an erudite but extraordinarily accessible read, something which will come as no surprise to listeners who are familiar with the wonderful History of Ideas podcast upon which it's based. And I'm delighted to say that David Runciman joins me today to discuss it. David, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, I think I'd like to begin with the um, the context of this, um, well, first this podcast series and then this book, because you write in the introduction that, you know, this was a podcast which you um, delivered in the spring and summer of 2020. So a spring and summer that will always associate uh, with lockdown, with coronavirus, and with, as I mentioned in the introduction, sort of state actions, which I think most of us were completely unused to um, in our lifetimes. And I'm just curious to know, was it an idea that came directly out of these actions that the state were taking? Or was it something which perhaps you had conceived of before, but then was maybe influenced by current events? Yeah, it was more of the second. So my day job is mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm teaching at the university and uh, I teach an introduction to politics course, which is about um, the idea of the state, democracy, where these ideas come from, and partly about how contingent they are. You know, one, of, one of the things we think we should do is get students to think at the beginning about how some of the things they take for granted have a history. Um, but then the pandemic hit and two two things struck me, one of which was I couldn't do my day job anymore because uh, you know, among the things that were shut down were universities, uh, but I had a platform through this podcast to try and communicate in a different way. And so I wanted to put some of these thoughts out there for students, for sixth formers, people in school who were thinking of going to university. So it was pragmatic in that way. But also... 
I did find myself thinking that these ideas that I'd been teaching for a while and thinking about for a while, and this question about the contingency of the state, this thing that we so often have in the background of our lives and don't really quite uh, often think about where it comes from, it was really thrown into sharp relief. I, I felt two things at once, one of which was this power of the state, which maybe we thought we'd left behind, to take these life and death decisions. You know, we think we live in this comfortable stressed out liberal democratic system but behind it is something even more fundamental that what modern politics is is a system of government where we empower certain individuals to take decisions for us that either we can't take for ourselves we don't want to take for ourselves and they are life and death decisions it's not just in wartime that that happens and at the same time you could see the real strain that this way of doing politics was under in the age of digital technology, you know, in the age of global communication, in the age of a global pandemic, this this weird feature of politics in the last 18 months where the state has never been more, in my lifetime at least, more prominent. And it really matters which state you're in. It makes a big difference. You, you, your, your life chances may be affected as to whether you're in you know, the southern United States or in Scandinavia or whatever. And yet at the same time, so many of these forces seem to be transcending the modern nation mm-hmm. state and that that's what i was interested in i think one of the things that surprised me when um the lockdowns started arriving last year was in a sense that sort of yeah these kind of particularly i suppose western liberal democratic states were capable of such um sort of drastic action because we saw them beginning in china and i think it, a lot of us were probably unsurprised <laughs> that the chinese state was capable and willing to kind of to enact these kind of lockdowns but i remember particularly here in france even when the lockdown had begun in Italy, there was still this idea of, oh, it it couldn't happen here. The the French state wouldn't do this. The French people wouldn't put up with it. And then within the space of about five to 10 days, exactly the same kind of conditions were, were imposed here with very little resistance or very little protest. And I think that came as quite a sort of shock to the system in a way. And I think probably perhaps threw people back onto this reflection that you were talking about uh, quite exactly what this this thing was, this, this, this state, which has suddenly made itself very present. Yeah, and it's so funny in a way because it's, it also brings out the ways in which people think about other nations sure. and their, their sort of traditions. Because in a sense to me, from Britain, and I don't think I would have been alone in this, you'd think, well, of course the French state would do this. <laughs> the French state, very bureaucratic, very centralised, quite addicted actually to certain forms of soft coercion, not Mm -hmm. hard coercion, but soft coercion. Um, But in Britain, there was genuine uncertainty, I think, even within government as to whether people would put up with this. And there was a big argument in the UK in March, April of last year, summer, which which leaked out into the press around questions of herd immunity and so on, where people, Mm -hmm. they weren't necessarily championing herd immunity as a kind of disease treatment programme. But there were people saying, well, Two weeks is the maximum that the British people are going to put up with being told uh-huh. to stay in their homes. <laughs> Here we are 18 months later, and it turns out the British people are still keener on being locked up than their government is to lock them up. But I also remember, and I think I talked about this on Talking Politics, because we spoke to people in Italy. I mean, one of the things mm-hmm. we, we had a, a regular contributor who was locked down. She was locked down, Lucia Rubinelli in Italy. And so we talked to her early on in it, at that point where people had that feeling, well, it's coming, but surely it's not coming all the way here. Mm-hmm. But I remember her saying that um, in Italy, 
the Chinese came over to Italy to advise them on the lockdown. And the Italians said, mm -hmm. well, we've done the lockdown like you, like you did. Uh, so now what do we do? Because the disease is still spreading. And the, the Chinese government officials who came said, no, you haven't. This isn't a lockdown. Mm -hmm. We did a lockdown. A lockdown is when you have armed guards, people mm -hmm. with guns on the edge of the city, on the edge of Wuhan, who will shoot you if you leave the city. You're not doing a lockdown. You're doing a sort of Western liberal democratic version of a mm -hmm. lockdown, which actually is leaving way too much to discretion. And so even some of that did still hold this idea that actually it really does make a difference. And we might think, well, we can't do what the Chinese did. And we might have been right as well. Mm. After all, because the disease spread with us and it didn't with them. So when we have this kind of, um, so we're beginning a reflection on the the state as the, uh, particularly the modern state and, and its its origins. Um, you've acknowledged in the um, in the podcast and also in the book that uh, not necessarily everybody would choose to start with with hops. No, <laughs> um, and, and and yet and you, I think in the, in the book you make a very compelling case as to why uh, why you did, and that seems to be kind of connected to the sort of a transition from a sort of a pre-modern to a modern yeah. case of um, politics. Yeah, so it's, not everyone would start with Hobbes. And there are, you know, there are lots of arguments in my little world about what's in the canon and where you mm -hmm. should begin. And do you go back to the Greeks? Do you tell a story which is broadly speaking a sort of democratic story that you wouldn't start with Hobbes for that? In my book, there are people who are missing like Locke and mm. John Stuart Mill, some of the more sure. small L liberal thinkers. But um, the reason I'm interested in Hobbes, it's twofold, really. So the first is a, there's a basic conceptual reason, which is Hobbes's way of constructing this idea of the modern state. It was self-consciously new. He thought politics mm -hmm. to his time was just a disaster. English Civil War, 30 Years War, mm. too much killing. People would kill over anything, anything in Hobbes's mind. And he saw it in his own lifetime. This is the 17th century. was capable of, sort of descending into genocidal rage, my religion, your religion, my parliament, your king, my tribe, your tribe, mm. didn't really matter. So this sort of almost weirdly utopian desire to find a way of doing politics that transcended this kind of conflict. Mm. And he thought that the idea that made it possible was not democracy, it was representation. That essentially the foundation of modern politics is a, a sort of division of labour of a kind, that we are the citizens and we empower certain people or institutions to decide for us. And that wasn't a pre, in a pre-modern conceptions of politics. The tendency was to sort of set different groups against each other, the democracy against monarchy, the, the citizens against their rulers. And Hobbes said, what if we could find a way of doing politics where we lock them in together? And it mm -hmm. seems to me that that is still true. I mean, it's so much of Leviathan is completely <clears throat> out with our understanding of politics. It's a different world. But that sense that we are separate from our government, you know, we are not, I'm not a member of the UK government, I'm a member of the UK state, I'm not a member of the UK mm -hmm. government. The government is a distinct group of people, they are politicians, they have particular roles, and yet somehow under this system, we and they are codependent. They depend on us to legitimate them, we depend on them to take decisions for us. And that transcends all of the differences between different electoral systems even between democratic and non-democratic regimes. It's true of the Chinese state, it's true of our state. So, so one reason I want to start with Hobbes is he gets to the heart of something that is true across modern politics. And that's the story I try and tell in this book, through revolutions, through democratization, through post-colonial critiques. There's still something going on there. And then the other reason I think Hobbes is 
so interesting is that he has this reputation as a really bleak, miserable, cynical thinker. That, you know, his catchphrase is life before the state was nasty, brutish and short. And people think he must think that human beings are somehow nasty, brutish and short, you know, that we are we are naturally nasty to each other. Mm-hmm. But that's not him at all. He's completely misunderstood, I think. He doesn't think that we're nasty, but he thinks life without the state, without security, without the security of a decision maker, brings out our mistrust of each other. Mm-hmm. But when you read Leviathan, what you see is actually what the book is saying is not how bad life can be, but how good life can be. Mm-hmm. In the 17th century, here's someone writing and saying, if we get this right, if we can anchor our politics in a way that gives people the security they need so that they're not constantly fighting each other, the advantage will be not just wealth will become rich, not just peace will live longer, not just contentment, but it'll free us from politics. Mm. The trouble with the world he lived in is politics was everywhere. You you couldn't go to sleep at night confident that you'd wake up the next morning and politics wouldn't have invaded your home, taken away your children. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a world where politics was just a kind of background fact? That's his dream. And in a way, he was right. And we live in a world where actually one of the things that we've discovered in the last few years is just how miserable it can make us when politics comes back. Mm. <laughs> actually, one of, yeah. the th- you know, one of the things that modern citizens have become slightly addicted to is the luxury of not having to worry about politics. And Hobbes, mm. this sort of bleak, miserable thinker that people associate with this nasty state that's kind of constantly telling people what to do, was actually the prophet of our world, yeah. that world. I'd, I'd like to get into some of the, the ideas you brought up there, but one thing, just sort of speaking sort of more broadly, I think it's interesting what history does do to uh, sort of political thinkers generally. Mm. So sort of, um, and I, I think maybe... In the case of Hobbes, you know, that the, the word Hobbesian has become, as you say, associated with this kind of um, absolutist, um, sort of bleak, miserable view of the world. And yet sort of, you know, there's there's so much more to it. I mean, I remember that when I was reading Leviathan at university, firstly, sort of almost approaching it as a work of literature, like one that was yeah. sort of quite mad uh, in many in many respects, or at least it felt like that to, <laughs> to sort of 19 year old me. But um, but also, yeah, that seemed to sort of to to upset um, a lot of the kind of the inherited ideas about what Hobbes might represent. And similarly, I mean, one one thinker that you mentioned briefly near the beginning as a uh, thinker who people might have expected you to start the series with Machiavelli seems also to be somebody who's been a little bit kind of um, sort of traduced by history into something more sort of um, limited than he was, because I think sort of, you know, he is entirely represented by the one conception of politics mm. uh, we find in The Prince, whereas in his other, sort of his, his other works, like the sort of like the, his discourses and things like that, there's a more sort of, um, yeah, I, I suppose Machiavelli was not a Machiavellian yeah. um, in, in that yeah, respect. And Hobbesian, so, Hobbesian and Hayek was right. a Hayekian. I think it's probably the case that when you get, you know, when your name becomes an adjective in political argument, uh, inevitably you are seriously reduced as a thinker. Um, mm. And Hobbesian, so Hobbesian tends to be applied to international politics as well. One of the oddities about Hobbes is he wasn't, I mean, he has things to say about international politics, but he's not really a thinker of, of mm-hmm. international I'm order. But that's where it gets applied, the anarchy of the international world, whereas actually Hobbes mm-hmm. was trying to create the stability of the state. Yeah. 
I'm interested in um, the relationship between Hobbes and Descartes as well, because uh, I mean, you talk about the sort of the effect that Hobbes had as sort of like his 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 work being a kind of a jolt to the system mm. and almost kind of sort of flipping the switch from sort of one mode of existence always to another. And sort of Descartes would often be sort of uh, held up in the same in the same light, as sort of with the with the cogito, like something happened to uh, the way in which you know, Europeans at least uh, thought and understood the world, which was there'd be no sort of coming back from. Do you, did you have the sense that they were sort of, that there was uh, influence between them? Well, sure. I, I mean, they, 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 they knew yeah. each other. They wrote to each other. It's the same period. It's the dawn of the scientific revolution. It's the Hobbes, among other things, is a thinker who I think rightly mm-hmm. spotted that if you could take politics away from the Bible, you'd probably be have a better chance of achieving some kind of stability than mm-hmm allowing politics to be endlessly arguments about whose God gets to decide. Um, and the, so the word I use, and, and there's some pushback on this, actually, when I did the podcast, I had people saying, but this is, you know, this is the wrong word. So, so I say of Hobbes that he was a skeptic um, and mm-hmm. Descartes was a skeptic. You say, well, Descartes wasn't a skeptic. You know, Descartes, in the end, uses the cogito to come up with an argument for the existence of God. How can you be a skeptic? Sure. So skepticism is a philosophy that says you, know, you doubt until you reach certainty. Mm-hmm. So they weren't nihilists. You know, a nihilist is someone who never, you know, as it were, who keeps doubting and never, in the end, there's mm-hmm. no foundation there. But in their different ways, they were looking for the thing that you could rely on that wouldn't succumb to all of the problems of different human perspectives, different mm-hmm. human experiences, you know, different mm-hmm. human sensations. Um, mm-hmm. And for Hobbes, that thing was, a, a, I think we would call it a scientific, he would call it philosophical, but for him, philosophy mm-hmm. was science. <clears throat> science was philosophy a scientific understanding of human nature, um, mm-hmm. which said that to be human is to have some understanding that is shared by dint of being human. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty basic. So it's a very, you know, Hobbes is not, I think, a particularly cynical thinker. I don't think he's a particularly nasty thinker, but it is very parsimonious. You know, It's looking for mm-hmm. the, the few things on which you can build something that will last. Unlike mm-hmm. what he th- thought of as ancient philosophy, you know, he thought the problem with Aristotle is he sort of had an opinion on everything. <laughs> if you, yeah, you read Aristotle, yeah. and most of it based on experiences, sensations, you know, cultural understandings, which were entirely contingent, and no one who didn't live at his time and saw the world he saw it would agree with them. Is there something that is much, much more narrowly constrained, and therefore, mm-hmm. in sort of epistemic terms, and therefore shared? And Hobbes thought that there was. And mm-hmm. the, the thing about Hobbes's argument, and it's, its absolute sort of core claim, is that we've got lost in politics by thinking that the big question is which politics do we want? Mm-hmm. My politics, your politics, let, you know, this is anachronistic, but sort of left, right, sure. <laughs> conservative, whatever, Protestant, Catholic. It, politics goes wrong if you think the first question of politics is which politics. Obviously, mm-hmm. the first question of politics is why politics? Mm-hmm. Do we want to have politics or not? That's the choice. The ultimate choice is a world where politics breaks down and in the end becomes anarchy or a world where it endures. And to get to the, the right answer to that question, which is we, we all actually want a world where politics endures so that we can get on with our lives and not have it consumed by politics. To mm-hmm. answer that question, those which questions have to fade away. They're not so important. It's less important who governs you than that you are governed. 
And there are even moments in the 21st century when that becomes true. So, I mean, that's one of the oddities about the pandemic in that when it really got scary, the question of whether your government was Johnson or Macron or Merkel or Trump and now Biden, whether it was this regime or that regime, was less important than that someone could take a decision. Some of the decisions were better, some were worse. Some governments did better, some did worse. Some systems did better, some did worse. But in the end, the, the, the real question was, can someone impose some order on this situation? Mm. Still a Hobbesian world in that respect. That seems to really feed into that sort of idea of the kind of the, the scientific approach in a way. I mean, you use the words uh, sort of ma- uh, mechanical and uh, mathematical mm. um, and you describe um, Hobbes. You say, like, uh, for Hobbes, to be alive is to be a creature in motion. Uh, and there was something really that struck me as kind of almost shockingly modern about that as an observation. I A few weeks ago, I recorded an interview with the novelist Tom McCarthy, whose new book uh, is a lot to do with kind of motion capture and like tracking motion. And, and there's essentially the same idea contained in this kind of deeply contemporary deeply modern novel and and so then to come back and find this idea expressed uh in Hobbes was quite a was quite a jolt yeah so it's a deeply materialist view of the world and he was so Hobbes wasn't just a philosopher and writer he was interested in optics uh, you know this mm. is the age where people were discovering that the heart pumps blood around the body mm. that light is motion you know these things were new ideas in Hobbes's time things that we take for granted but also this line that uh, when I first read Leviathan, I only really was struck by this line much, much more recently. And I think it's one of the most interesting features of mid-17th century philosophy <clears throat> that this should be there, that the very first line of Leviathan says that the state is an automaton. It's a robot. Mm-hmm. This is a robotic construction of politics. And so many of Hobbes's critics then say, well, then what you get is a very mechanical politics. You know, that mm-hmm. One of the criticisms, you know, this is sort of leads to later 20th century thought, Foucault and other people, that you know, this is the beginning of this very, you know, this pared down politics actually dehumanizes us because we mm-hmm. get a state that sort of treats us as cogs in the machine or now people might say it's just data points. And mm-hmm. True in the pandemic, you know, we become data points and there's a, there's a danger, there's a risk in this politics. But what you get is not the humanization of politics, but the mechanization of the human. So one of the people I talk about in, in Confronting Leviathan is Hannah Arendt, who's one of the great yeah. critics. Of, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but one of the great critics of Hobbes and who blamed Hobbes for what she saw as this sort of deep mechanistic strain running through modern thought that in the end loses what's human about politics for her, which is storytelling, mm-hmm. that the yeah. machines yeah, yeah. can't tell stories. And I think she was wrong. I think actually, so you you touched on it. Leviathan is a great work of literature. It is itself a kind of extraordinary act of storytelling. The Leviathan Mm -hmm. is, is, so it's both an automaton and it's also a metaphor. You know, the Leviathan is not actually a robot. It's a sea monster. Um, But also, I think what Hobbes was saying is if we get this right, if we construct this state so that certain people take decisions for us, it will go best if they're storytellers actually mm-hmm. you know if they're able to bring us along with them and the most successful states the most durable states the united states of america britain france are the ones where the state isn't just the kind of decision making machine it's something which has a history and a biography and a story behind mm-hmm. it and i don't think i think hobbes is traduced by people he's traduced by most people who sort of 
use him in a mm. later context. But when people say he's, you know, he's because it's a pared down conception of politics, it's a pared down conception of who we are and what the state is. No, he says if you boil it down to its essentials, then you can build it up again and you can rehumanize it. Mm. And again, I think he was right. I mean, I, you know, you're not meant to say this as a historian that some people are right, sure. some people are wrong. <laughs> but I kind of think about a lot of things. I mean, about some things he was completely wrong. But I think he was right that you could do amazing things with this this machine if you just set it up right. Mm-hmm. One thing on, on the subject of kind of setting it up, um, one thing that leaves me slightly puzzled with Hobbes is that there's a moment where he, he says, you know, this can't, this isn't something that sort of a state can convert itself to necessarily. This is something which kind of has to happen sort of in one go. Mm. Um, and yet that doesn't seem to be something which could or would ever happen in, in a sense. Mm. Like that seems to sort of to go from the state of nature or or, or some other state to in, in one sort of fell swoop to the Hobbesian, uh, sort of the, the Hobbesian state seems kind of impossible on its own terms. So is there, was there something a little bit perhaps like in the, in this, in the way that like Moore was doing when he wrote Utopia, almost as a sort of, uh, a sort of a, potentially a satire on the, the idea of the perfect state was Hobbes sort of setting this up as something by which existent state could be compared to and, and judged against, or do you think it really was something that he thought potentially could arrive in, in reality? Yeah. I mean, it's, so it's a really good question. It's a really difficult question to answer because I don't think it's satirical. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it, for Hobbes, it's, this is, Science. This is geometry. This is it's a it's a construction that can can and indeed should happen. There's a logic to it, but it's also rhetorical and polemical, and it's a kind of thought experiment. Bits of it are meant to be applicable in the sense that one of one of the big arguments at the time when he wrote um, during the English Civil War, and he was unfortunate with the timing of Leviathan, and that you know he conceived it when there was a king, and he published it when. Mm-hmm the king had lost his head. And so there was a different regime in place. And the argument of Lewathen is you have to accept the decision maker that you have in charge. And so he had to sort of switch allegiance in a way. Um, But it was meant to have a practical force which said, you know, states, when states do things by force, by coercion, if you're conquered, um, Mm -hmm. you know, if if your state changes overnight, and it happens in his world, you shouldn't spend your time thinking about how can we get back to what we've lost. You just ask yourself mm-hmm. the basic question, is this new regime capable of providing order? And if it is, you mm-hmm. accept it. You only you only don't accept it if it's a kind of contradiction in terms. If the thing that's meant to give you order gives you chaos, well, don't mm-hmm. accept it because it's chaos. But I think what he was really trying to convey, and there's a sort of complicated historical argument here to do with the social contract tradition, but mm-hmm. there was this sense that and I'll put it as simply as I can, that in order to have politics, first you needed to have something called society. That was the sort of argument. Mm-hmm. The social contract tradition tend to come in two stages. So you have human beings in their natural condition. And, and first of all, they socialize, they get together, mm-hmm. they form themselves into a unit. And then that unit decides that it needs governing and the unit enters into a contract with a king or a council or a government. So mm-hmm. there are two stages. And Hobbes says, once you have two stages, you're lost. If you have two stages to anything in politics, people, because people always pick sides, some people will be on the side of society, some sure. people will be on the side of government. And that could be parliament king, you know, whatever it mm-hmm. is. But 
So he wanted an all or nothing politics. That's the absolute sort of central rhetorical force of what he was saying. The questions that people have been asking are the wrong ones. The question should be politics or no politics. And so he comes up with this extraordinary imaginative conception of politics, which makes it an all or nothing thing. You either have in one go government and society or you have chaos. So he says, mm-hmm. there's a famous line where he says, there is no unity except through the representation of the sovereign. There can be no other mm-hmm. form of unity, i.e. this is your choice. You either accept government and therefore that allows you to have a society that allows you to lead a social life or you embrace chaos. Mm-hmm. That's the force of the argument. Could it ever happen? No. But did he think that if people thought of politics in that those terms, they might ask the right question? Yes. Because for Hobbes, mm-hmm. the right question is not you know, what kind of politics do we want, but do we want the possibility of politics and therefore the really important stuff, which is not politics, but society, mm-hmm. life, love, happiness, and all that, you know, all of the good stuff, do we want to, to put politics in its place so that we can put all of our energy and attention and emotion and, and competition and creativity and conflict in a space, the social space, where it can flourish? If all of that goes into politics, politics will break apart. That was his argument. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a sort of... Yeah, no, no, completely. Um, and that that seems to sort of, um, I guess, feed into the 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 other thinkers because even um, you know, perhaps this is partly the way that you you, you frame it in the book. But it seems that as we progress f- um, through the centuries, so many of the different thinkers seem to be not necessarily directly or even knowingly responding to Hobbes, but in some way sort of resp- working within the framework that he established and sort of or sort of responding to him knowingly or otherwise on his terms like he seemed to at least um for a for a certain period to kind of set the um the the terms of the debate yeah i think so and so the theme if the book has a theme it's that this idea that we start with Hobbes because it's this this remarkably sharp and as i say sort of parsimonious conception of politics and yet it produces this double character for the state the essential doubleness of modern politics which is that we you know we want our politics to free us from politics that's that's Mm -hmm. kind of the theme and it's actually a liberal idea so among other things one of the odd things about Hobbes is that it's not that Locke is the liberal and Hobbes is the sort of nasty Mm -hmm. authoritarian Hobbes wants that thing that that small l liberals want which is for the state to protect us from politics Mm -hmm. And that theme is there in all of these different writers. I, you know, one of the things I try to bring out with all of them, and that you know they're often understood as being themselves all or nothing thinkers, but there is this kind of double quality to them. You know, Tocqueville on democracy, he's both drawn to it and horrified by it. Marx and Engels mm-hmm. love capitalism. You know, one of the things that people forget <laughs> about Marx and Engels is they are awestruck by its incredible mm-hmm. creative power, its extraordinary ability to reinvent the world, and they want to harness that. And then writers like Wollstonecraft and, and Constant, who write about the end of the 18th, early 19th century, sort mm-hmm. of thinking about what do you do in a world where on the one hand, you, you sense your politics is fundamentally gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And yet you're already in that post-Hobbesian world where the thing that you're striving for is sort of protection from politics. So whether it's for Wollstonecraft relations between men and women, you know, if you think mm-hmm. relations between men and women, you know, society has got this sort of saw this fault running all the way through it, the horror of essentially sexual mm-hmm. 
the, the power relations behind sexual relationships. Can the state solve that? Because on the one hand, you want to think, well, yes, you know, we, we, we've created this state. If we can get the state right, it'll solve it. But on the other hand, you think, wouldn't it be awful to live in a world where we need the state to essentially intervene in, mm. in personal human relationships? And Constant, it's the same. Constant lived through the French Revolution. That's, a, that's how politics can go hideously wrong. It becomes this totalizing thing. Mm. So we want you know, early 19th century France, Constant's a liberal how can we put that hideous thing back in the box? How can we get politics out of our lives again? And his answer is, well, we have to be more political. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, liberals, we liberals can't leave politics up to the lunatics. You know, we can't leave politics <laughs> up to the extremists. I think it's a really 21st century idea. You know, mm. We live in a world where people often argue, what is the central divide in our politics? Is it sort of between the generations or is it, you know, people often now argue, I have on our podcast, that it's sort of an educational divide. But there is mm -hmm. this other divide, which is between the political people and the non-political people. You know, the activists, yeah. the extremists, the party members, the smaller group who do most of the politics and the larger group who don't want to do politics. And if the larger group leaves politics up to the smaller group, politics will go wrong. So there's a paradox. Mm. If you want to be free from politics, you have to do politics. Yeah, that's constant, and that comes from Hobbes. And I guess, in a way, um, we'll, we'll definitely come on to, to Fanon later. But there's also maybe a third kind of overlooked group, which is the people who have politics done to them. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> sure. and because uh, because there seems to be like that that divide. But I was to say, we'll come to the sort of that idea. And and in a way, I guess Wollstonecraft is um, of the same kind of the same kind of category as well. And that for me in the in the book was. In, in a in a way that there's, there's uh, you know a nice kind of chronological and also sort of philosophical progression between uh, from one thinker to the next, but from Hobbes to Wollstonecraft, in a sense, was sort of felt to me the sort of the biggest leap and the yeah. biggest rupture. Um, just before we go into Wollstonecraft a little bit, um, could Hobbes's sovereign have been a woman? Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And Hobbes, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the famous picture at the front of Leviathan is of a man. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's certainly true. I mean, who knows what Hobbes would say? But I, in his lifetime, he was born in 1588, the year of the Spanish Armada. Um, so he lived through the reigns of Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I, the interregnum mm -hmm. Charles II. No question which was the most successful of those. It was Elizabeth yeah. I. And she, she was the Hobbesian sovereign. I mean, she actually, in many ways, ticks all the boxes in mm. that she got a grip on religion, but she was very careful not to interpose religion you know, right the way through people's lives. It was it was both extremely coercive, very centralised, but also in its way permissive, uh, mm. not looking into men's souls and all that. It was stable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She defended the state. You know, she she did mm. the, the absolute basics. People tried to invade and they didn't get away with it, you know, the year that, that Hobbes was born. And it kind of was downhill from there. Um, mm. And... She understood many aspects of Hobbesian sovereignty in a way that, I mean, whether I don't know enough actually about the history of this to know to what extent Hobbes in his own education and then thinking was shaped by this. But for sure, um, mm -hmm. it could be a woman and it was a woman in Hobbes's own lifetime. Yeah. But again, for Hobbes, the key question was, that's not as important as that it should sure. be someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
But the, the, the reason I asked that as well, though, is because, of course, by the time we get to Wollstonecraft, there has this kind of this division has arisen, this kind of false division, but one that yeah. seemed to carry kind of a lot of weight between the rational and the emotional. So sort of yeah. men were supposed to be the rational creatures and women were supposed to be the emotional creatures. Mm. And since the Hobbesian state, you know, was supposedly founded on the concept of reason, although I think probably yeah. in Hobbes and a lot of these thinkers, the concept of reason does quite a lot of heavy lifting in a way, yeah. I think, which is sort of um, without being sort of necessarily uh, very kind of clearly defined. But uh, but that's definitely one thing that Wollstonecraft is pushing against is this pushing against an idea that a state can or should be entirely rational. In fact, that it should sort of, you know, as humans, yeah. we exist on all these different levels and with all these different forces and the state should represent that. Yeah, and so so by Wollstonecraft's time, I mean the word we would now use is that these these categories have become gendered. Though she does the word she uses is sex. I mean, it's sex mm-hmm. for her. You know, it's a separate question. Yeah, uh, but you know, it's important to recognise that for her, this is a question of sex. Um, but yeah, in a, in a way, two things have gone wrong. And Wollstonecraft is writing at the time of the French Revolution, an event in which mm-hmm. she was intimately connected. She was there in Paris. She, like many people, had enormous hopes for French Revolution, many of which were disappointed. But what you're one of the things that's gone wrong, French Revolution conceived in its own terms as a highly rational um, mm-hmm. political phenomenon. But rationality at that time had become male. It was, mm-hmm. the, it was the men did rationality and women did emotion or romance. Romanticism has entered into this story mm-hmm. too. The trouble with conceiving of the French Revolution as rational and therefore male or male and therefore rational is one politics is not purely rational and two Mm. men are not purely rational you've got this sort of double mistake and again what she's trying to convey is a much broader conception of what it is to be human where this false divide you know it's a false choice in a way Mm -hmm. if Hobbes is the philosopher who says we need to get away from false choices in politics and think about what the real questions are Wollstonecraft is in that tradition because she sees a world where this false dichotomy is opened up, men, women, reason, emotion, where, of course, women have reason and men have emotion. And if you construct a world where you force people into these arbitrary binary categories, eventually everything will go wrong, including politics. Mm -hmm. And the way to recover from that is to understand that it's going to be double all the way through. Um, and there is a kind of doubleness to it. And the French Revolution, which was actually a kind of Hobbesian event. I mean, that's the other thing about it. People associated with Rousseau, but many of the sure. key thinkers were highly influenced by Hobbes and ideas of sovereignty. But it had kind of gone wrong because it had got trapped in this false choice. And women were excluded. You know, the French Revolution was a profoundly sexist event. And Hobbes wasn't. And Wollstonecraft was trying to rescue ideas of what it is to be human from a, mm. a, a false divided world, world divided mm. by the sexes, in which, of course, women were got the rough end of the deal. But you know, one, of, one of the such interesting things about Wollstonecraft is that she also thinks men get the rough end of the deal too. So she has all mm. these fascinating analogies. Men, relations between men and women are like the relationships between tyrants of their subjects or soldiers and mm. civilians. It's, you can either not have the power or you can have the power. If it's a false choice, you're going to be corrupted both ways. Everyone is corrupted in a world of false choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there is there something, um, do you think, about the fact that uh, it was over the time, like from the, from the time of Hobbes and perhaps arguably 
because of the sort of the, the skepticism of Descartes and the way that philosophy changed after him, that this kind of the the concept of the the individual comes into play mm. and uh, maybe sort of in some way sets up certain oppositions to the the kind of the absolutist uh, perspective that Hobbes presents. I think specifically of um, of Benjamin Constant when you when you, you write about him and just this idea that he had that there was sort of you know we have this idea of um, a sort of a society built on something you know like the general will or some sort of covenant, but for him you know he he always thought that we we change there was something like there was no going back to a state of humanity where this kind of organization would be wholly acceptable to us. Yeah, he, he thought um, that one of the things about being modern is we'd sort of gone past a point where we were just too attached to, and the word he would use, the word we would use is privacy. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. too, we're too attached to the idea that there's something special about us um, mm-hmm. and that our ability to make our own choices and not have them dictated to us, not necessarily by the state, they could be dictated to us by convention, by religion, by tradition. I mean, actually... Mm-hmm. I think on the whole, human beings are much more dictated to by those things than they are by law. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's still true now. Most of us are constrained by worrying about what you know, our neighbours or our peers or our face group, mm-hmm. group friends will think of us than by what the state <laughs> will think of us. But that as as modern citizens, we have a kind of bedrock assurance that there's some part of our lives that we can hold on to for ourselves and in which we can be authentically mm-hmm. ourselves. And a politics that takes that from us, that collectivizes that, constant thought would would it would crash on that that bedrock of desire for privacy. Constant said, and he writes about Hobbes that Hobbes got this half right, but he gave too much power to the state. He didn't reserve enough power for the for the individual. He didn't reserve enough freedom. And in the end, you know, we're we're too vulnerable to the Hobbesian state. And he's probably right. And he wanted the reassurance of constitutions and rule of law and a liberal mm-hmm. order. But it is still there in Hobbes, that idea that, I mean, Hobbes would say what he was trying to do was rescue our individuality. You know, we're creatures mm-hmm. in motion, but we're, none of us are moving the same way. You know, we're bouncing around. There's a kind of randomness to it. Mm-hmm. We're not all moving on parallel tracks. It's not like ball bearings kind of running down these smooth grooves. It's chaos out there. It's chaos to be human. And we all see things differently. So we are individuals. We're sovereign individuals in a way. And we have to give up some of that in order to preserve it. You know, it's, it's that old line. If you want things to remain as they are, you ha- they have to change. If you want to be an individual, you have to give up some of your individuality. And the question is, which bit? And the, these mm. thinkers all have different, the liberal ones, different answers to that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, you know, as it were, once you see what the real choices are, they aren't these sort of, either I'm going to live in an individualistic society or a collectivist society. It's mm. the real choice is, what am I willing to give up in order to retain the thing that I really value? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be something which does kind of uh, ebb and flow between the mm. thinkers uh, as we advance through the book, like how uh, how much they they think people should be or would be willing to, to give up. Um, yeah, and to, it depends to... on who the people are we're talking about here. If it's mm. the immiserated proletariat, you know, it's a, for Marx and Engels, it's a different question from you know, Tocqueville, who, you know, his worry in the end uh, with American democracy is that people would give up too much, actually. Mm-hmm. But, you know, despite the fact that he goes there as a French aristocrat to America and sees this highly individualistic, dynamic, vibrant, democratic society in which 
those aristocratic traditions have been swept away and there isn't the deference that he was used to and there isn't also the the, the horror of the terror or any of that. It's it's a hopeful mm-hmm. place uh, built on this individualistic dynamism and yet he sees mm-hmm. behind it the, the deep pull of a kind of conformity. That, mm-hmm. you know, there's a way in which you know, this goes back to that point about states are have stories as well. They're not just these mechanical yeah, yeah. entities. And my God, the American state has a story behind it that's told. Mm-hmm. Every, Tocqueville said every year on the 4th of July, that it's like a religious ceremony. They they tell their <laughs> myths. And their myths are these myths of you know, life, love, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the individual is sacrosanct. But they, they commemorate these things in these deep groupish activities, marching around, mm-hmm. singing songs. And that there is in the American psyche, the American character, partly shaped by religion and ideas of providence and so on, at least the possibility of a kind of conformity that could mm. corrupt it. So he sees it almost the other way around. That you know, for Hobbes, there's a danger that we don't give up enough and then we end up with chaos. For Tocqueville, mm. there's this thought that we could so embrace the idea that we really are individuals that we don't notice mm-hmm. the ways in which we've become sheep. And again, you look at contemporary American democracy and you can join the dots. <laughs> One of the uh, things I found interesting about um, Tocqueville as well is this idea that sort of one of the reasons that America worked or at least had the potential to work was because of its territory. Like mm. it was, you know, at least from from sort of Europe and Asia at the time, it was broadly isolated and that seemed to be a sort of a fundamental underpinning to some sort of sort of coherent political system for him. And in, I guess in a way, there's a similar idea, for example, in Marx and Engels with the, the Internationale, um, that sort of like, you know, these, these kind of revolutions need to be sort of all encompassing. Is that, is that an idea that we also find in Hobbes? You know, I think yeah. So for Hobbes, I think it's still it's it's conceived that these states are going to operate in um, relatively constrained territory. It's a European conception. Mm-hmm. There is this thing in Hobbes. You know, Hobbes knew about this thing called America. This mm-hmm. essentially at, at that point just about to be colonized. You know, I guess the phrase they would use is virgin territory, mm-hmm. uh, where people lived. You know, people in Europe at this point were sort of fascinated, horrified, and alienated by the stories that were coming back of how people lived without either society or government, as they saw it, yeah. uh, Native American life. But that deep fascination was already there in the middle of the 17th mm. century. But um, I, uh, the idea of that space, that was not the European experience of politics. The mm. European experience of politics was territorial. It was bordered, boundaried. Hobbes writes about that you know, one of the things that a sovereign has to do is guard the edge of the state. You know, You need... Mm-hmm people watching for where the next invasion is coming from. Whereas what you get with Tocqueville is this idea that the thing about the United States of America, once it becomes a state, is unlike European states, it has the space to go wrong, in a sense. Mm. It's not under threat of invasion. Um, When it gets constrained, when people are trapped, they can move west. There's a sort of expansive quality to it. There's a sense in which it can break free from the limitations of European politics. Essentially, Hobbes thought, the trouble with Europe is if you mess up your politics, someone will invade you. So it makes people paranoid. It makes them risk averse. United States of America had a kind of freedom, almost a sort of carefree freedom that you could try things. It was experimental. What I find so fascinating about Tocqueville is that he detected behind that, and I think, again, I think he was right. I think history has borne him out. But that doesn't then just necessarily go along with a kind of dynamic 
imaginative, creative politics. It also creates complacency. So I use this phrase, he wouldn't use it, it's a 20th century economist phrase, but moral hazard. This idea mm-hmm. that it's dangerous to be allowed to do things where you don't pay the price of your mistakes. And mm-hmm. Tocqueville thought that the danger with American democracy is that they would think it didn't matter if it went wrong, because in the end right. it would be all right, which is a kind of complacent providential view that somehow the American story was one where there was a license mm-hmm. to screw it up. And you get echoes of that even now. There's this sort of odd sense in American politics that on the one hand, the sky is always falling in, people are angry and frustrated and they rage against the system and the constitution doesn't work. And at the same time, I always feel with, and I've seen, I think we've seen it in the era of Trump, there's this sense that the system can withstand anything. It doesn't matter who's, you know, we can we can sort of elect someone who's going to try and kick it down because it won't fall down. Yeah. And Tocqueville writing in the period before the Civil War said, be careful because it, it might fall down. And it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yes. did. There is this, this sense as well, like one thing I think that is very striking about Hobbes is that it's it's not, um, it's not a system he's proposing. It's not a kind of a structure. And in fact, it's sort of like, we get the sense that the, you know, it's the less structure, the less system, the better, mm. um, in a way. But it did occur to me, I think, particularly when uh, reading the the chapters on on Marx and Engels, and then later on Hayek, if there was kind of the way in which they talk about capitalism, particularly or the free market, is is there any scope in sort of Hobbesian thinking of a kind of essentially an ideology taking the place? of the sovereign like could the mm. sort of like the idea or the, the the sort of the philosophy if you like of capitalism or any other ideology occupy the space and sort of fulfill the role of the sovereign as Hobbes, as Hobbes saw it. so I think Hobbes's answer to that question would be no because people often make this point and sort of want to know well Hobbes talks about the state as this sort of machine uh this decision-making mm-hmm. machine well can't the market fulfill that function right Um, isn't capitalism well sure there's something mechanical and um, sort of number crunching about the market but it's not a decision making machine in the sense that Hobbes understood a decision as a quintessentially human thing actually Mm -hmm. Um, I mean it's true that there's a complicated argument in Hobbes about animals and their will and so on and it's kind of quite an interesting question whether a goat could be sovereign if you sort of put (laughs) three pieces of food in front of the goat and said this one represents this religion, this you know, any decision will do, but nonetheless, it's I think like that, that octopus that, that predicts football. Exactly, stars, right? I think you know, yeah. a, a coin toss sort of could could stand in for a decision, but a sustainable mm-hmm. system is going to be based on on what is essentially a choice. And mm-hmm. for Hayek, the point about the market is it doesn't choose. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not subject to human will and human volition. Um, it, it genuinely is a machine in which numbers are inputted and out comes a number, mm-hmm. which is the price. But you don't say that yesterday the stock market decided that Apple was worth X. Mm-hmm. I mean, the stock market is an algorithm. And though one could argue about whether Hobbes would think that actually everything is an algorithm, our brains are an algorithm, nonetheless, the human capacity for decision making is different from that. It's a mm-hmm. choice and it can be quite arbitrary. But it is a choice framed by human input. And I think he would think it's dangerous. when Once you're on the road to putting in place an ideology or a system mm-hmm. or a structure like a market, 
Hobbes, I don't think he would think that would forward looking. I think he would think, well, that reminds me of the thing I was trying to rescue you from, which was the idea that the Bible tells you what to do. Mm. The Bible does not tell you what to do. The Bible is a construction of words which tells a story, or you could read it in all sorts of different ways. But the Bible, unless you just do that thing of opening at random and saying, well, point to this verse and that will be our decision. That's the decision. But the idea that the Bible is a decision-making mechanism is a mistake. A decision-making mechanism is something like a parliament or a court Mm -hmm. or a sovereign individual. And I think Hobbes would say it's a category mistake. And actually, I don't think Hayek would disagree. Hayek's whole point about the market is the market is not a political decision-making body. You need politics to protect what the market gives you, which is knowledge. And Hobbes never said what you'll get from the sovereign is knowledge. You know, sovereign's human. Some human beings mm. know stuff, some don't. What you'll get from the sovereign is a decision. Mm. And a decision is different from knowledge. And there are lots of really interesting questions that we can't go into now in the age of digital technology and algorithms and, course, and the yeah. role of algorithmic decision-making in politics as to whether mm-hmm. we've confused those categories. And your politicians are now saying the computer has decided and maybe we should say to them, well, that's not what we mean by a political decision. Mm. Mm, that's interesting and I, I think as you say yeah we don't have obviously time to, to <laughs> unpack that's a separate that. podcast. no but but yeah just that um it that I do have a deep discomfort with the way in which artificial intelligence is kind of talked about almost as sort of like it can be directly mapped onto to human intelligence like it's a way of it's a way of I guess understanding um the the complexity of the decision yeah and so so there is just as a sort of interlude there is an interesting argument about Hobbes so there's a really fascinating book where it was published about 1997 by George Dyson called Darwin Among the Machines which is about the history Mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence pre-Google and it starts with Leviathan Hobbes is Leviathan says this is an early artificial intelligence this sort of creature Mm -hmm. that Hobbes has built and I think that's a mistake so I think in Leviathan, what Hobbes is building is an artificial decision-making machine. Mm-hmm. But the intelligence is human. Um, right. it's, it's not an artificial, it's not an AI. So I call it an AA. It's an artificial agent. It's an artificial mm-hmm. thing capable of extraordinary forms of artificial action, decision, decisions that have a kind of force and an enduring quality over time, superhuman mm-hmm. decisions. But the intelligence is not superhuman. And we know that Hobbes thought this because he says, your sovereign might be an idiot. Uh-huh. <laughs> Still your sovereign. <laughs> it's This is not about finding the smartest machine in the room to decide for mm-hmm. you. So I think that, that we get those things muddled up and it's a risk. Yeah. One thing I, I would like to talk about, and we are running out of time, but mm. is that thing I, I brought up briefly earlier, was that idea of sort of um, people to whom politics is done as mm. opposed to people deciding or not to be involved in politics? Because... Um, I think that was a moment where uh, the book really feels as if it sort of opens out is when you start bringing in uh, Gandhi and then when you go to the writings of obviously uh, Fanon and then McKinnon to a certain extent, like this sense of sort of like these discussions, it's not that they are the discussions about the state. It's not that they're sort of irrelevant, but to a certain population, they have no... You know, they have this question of legitimacy hasn't even been raised yeah. for them. Yeah. And yeah, and it is really important to say so this is one story you said at the beginning, and I'm grateful you did. This is, you know, this isn't the history of ideas. It is a mm-hmm. history of ideas. And actually on the podcast, then 
in, in the lockdown earlier this year, I did another one to, trying to tell a very different kind of story. That one starts with Rousseau and is much more about questions of sort of inequality and mm-hmm. sort of alienation and so on. So this is, you know, I'm not, absolutely not saying that you start with Hobbes and you kind of get the whole story. You get, it's going to be yeah. partial. There's something very partial about Hobbes, his, his pared-down theory of politics. There is something mm-hmm. austere and unpleasant about it. And it's designed to, to build a state that works for the people who inhabit that state. Mm-hmm. But there will be people who are on the outside for all sorts of reasons. So they may be excluded internally, um, mm-hmm. whatever one might say about Hobbes thinking that women could be sovereign. Nonetheless, he still had an understanding of the family, which was deeply mm-hmm. patriarchal. Um, and family life can itself be profoundly alienating. But also, you know, we live in a world in which, for many people, the state is something on which they are, sorry, the state is something that they are on the outside of. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, there are many people I said, your Hobbes thinks when you're conquered, when you're colonized, that state then becomes your state. But for many people, it Mm -hmm. doesn't. I mean, that option isn't even made available. It's not like now we're taking you over. And so you are now a subject and a citizen of the state. No, you are a separate Mm -hmm. people. And then the question is very, very different. And what I found so fascinating about Fanon is he takes some of these Hobbesian categories about the divisions in the life of the state, but he, he views them completely differently. So mm-hmm. with Hobbes, you've got this sort of sense that part of your life is lived in politics under sovereign rule, and then in part of your life, you get on with your life and so on. But to be colonized for Fanon is to live mm-hmm. in a world where essentially there's this kind of dividing line that runs all the way through your society between the people who exercise force coercion in the name of the state and the people who are simply excluded. And there is a kind of exclusion that's made possible by the Hobbesian state. In a way, it only works if it is a co-optive enterprise. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and it often isn't. It still isn't. I mean, still in, in modern Western liberal democratic states, there are many people for whom the idea that this is something that they have legitimated because they understand the security that comes with it. It's mm-hmm. just a joke. I mean, it's just yeah, yeah, a yeah. joke. And there are many conceptions of politics that try and take account of that, give voice to people who, who don't have a voice under this system. This system puts a huge premium on citizenship. Hobbes didn't call it citizens because he thought that sounded like republicanism, but he called them subjects. But what it means is members of the state. Yeah, well, what yeah, if yeah. you don't feel membership? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet for Fanon, kind of, I guess, ironically, there is the sense that it's only in being outside of it that you can get a clear idea it. of how it really works. Yeah, and in many ways, that's the theme of the second series of History of Ideas, and mm-hmm. it may then be the second book, if I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, which is that, that question of, uh, so Hobbes is trying to, to build it up on sort of logical grounds, and then here are the people who are sort of embracing this bit, critiquing that bit, and so on. Mm-hmm. But then there's also just that question of, who are the people who see through it? You know, it's, mm-hmm. the thing about the Hobbesian state is it's not really transparent, you know, the, the the robot is the robot. It works. It produces laws and, and people live under them. But for many people, there's going to be this desire to sort of see behind the mask, to see what's really going on, to see how this power really works. Mm-hmm. And often the people who are at the heart of the power don't see it. And often the people who yeah, benefit yeah, yeah. from the power don't see it. The people who mm-hmm. see it are the people who are excluded. So Fanon thought, yeah. and Marx thought it was, Marx and Engels thought it was the proletariat who could see. The bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie were fatally compromised by their inability to understand their own situation. Fanon mm-hmm. thought that the colonizers, though they were brutal oppressors, they couldn't be honest with themselves. How could you be? Mm-hmm. How can you be honest with yourself if you are 
a representative of the British Raj, you'd go mad. And Fanon was a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And he said, the evidence that you go mad is, I'll show you all the people I treat who go mad trying yeah. to deal with this. The people who don't go mad are the oppressed because it's not complicated for them. There, there's one moment where, um, and, I, and I can only imagine this was a very sort of deliberate word choice on your part. That it really struck me as sort of, Kind of highlighting the um, the disjunct, I suppose we experience between um, certain certain political actions and others. And there's a moment when you're talking about Fanon, and you say you write that um, Martinique was part of the French state, but it was treated as a colony and exploited as a colony with all the racism that it, that entailed for black subjects like Fanon. And then the French state was itself colonized by the Nazi state. And I think that's the first time I've ever heard the word colonized used for what I think people would normally refer to as the invasion of France mm. by the Nazi state. And it just, it, it really struck me as almost sort of like that, that sort of clarity of vision is sort of coming sort of in practice in a way that sort of, I, it, yeah. when, when, when you look at it as a, as a kind of colonization, because I think in France, people would very much take issue with the idea that they were colonized by the Nazis because they have, a lot of people haven't quite come to the to terms with the idea that, colonization was a sort of inherently negative thing mm. um but it just yeah it just struck me as a very sort of interesting word choice and the sort of a very yeah, clarifying I mean, word choice so it was i mean i should say about this book and the podcast that um when i recorded the podcast i tried to i would think about what i wanted to say i would write down what i wanted to say mm -hmm. and then i would just speak them so i tried to do these podcasts as a kind of conversation but i'm the only one talking but as it were i, I try and talk um <laughs> As, and I, you know, as though people are, I'm speaking to them rather than reading a lecture. So I don't have notes in front of me. So I'm never completely mm -hmm. sure what it is that I've said. And then the podcasts were transcribed by my publisher. And then I sort of rewrote them and updated them for this thing. So I was myself sometimes surprised mm -hmm. by what I had said. Um, these would, the, would be the words that would come to mind. But the fact is in the book means that I'm comfortable with it. I mean, the French, yeah. So the French state is good at telling a story about itself. And the idea that it was colonized is not part of that story. You know, it was briefly invaded mm. and then it liberated itself. But it was a subject state. It was, a, you know, it was, uh, and the French, the people who lived in the bit that was colonized, uh, were subjected to the same kinds of um, coercion as the French themselves subjected to that colonized states just mm. for a shorter period of time. And Fanon, you know, it, it, he was on the receiving end twice. And as I say in the thing, he, he went to fight for the free French forces in which he discovered mm -hmm. that liberating France from its oppressor meant empowering France to be his, his oppressor. Mm -hmm. um, it was a double experience. These experiences mirror each other, but of course, many people don't see the doubleness. Many people in France absolutely did not see the doubleness, and Fanon's central political experience was the Algerian wars of independence, mm -hmm. the civil war and the war of independence. That France, the France of the 1950s, fighting to hold on to Algeria, was the France that Fanon had fought to liberate. And it is not surprising that if you're Fanon, that looks just completely sort of incoherent. You know, it's it's a the idea that these things are somehow completely separate categories just doesn't make any sense. If you're liberating France from the Nazis, you have to liberate Algeria from France. You, mm -hmm. you can't do one and not the other. Um, there's a yeah. you know, there's a a sort of clarity to his experience that is not shared, and he thought that Europeans, 
including the European working class. And so one of the things that he says is that Marxism has kind of run into the sand Marxist socialism because mm-hmm. to be European now is to be so compromised in your vision of this. The, the, the clear-eyed vision only really comes from the people who can see the full range. You know, mm-hmm. We might now say the sort of intersection of the different oppressions doesn't treat one as categorically different from another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, we are unfortunately out of time, but what the point I would like to sort of leave on, I think, is uh, the effect that the first the podcast and then the reading this book has had uh, on me as a as a reader, actually, and going back to either to, to revisit or to dis- discover some of these texts. And I think one of the things that was most striking that for the most part, they were incredibly beautiful works, actually. Mm. That was the thing. Like there's, you know, whether um, obviously that we talked about Hobbes, um, Leviathan as a, as a work of literature, uh, but like the, the Wretched of the Earth as well. I mean, it's not a, mm. it's not a, by no means a comfortable read. It shouldn't be. But as a sort of a, as a work of literature alongside as a work of political thought, it's quite, um, it's quite extraordinary. And I think that's, that's one thing which is not necessarily um, communicated enough. And I think one of the things that uh, the podcast and now the book do so well is that sort of to show that they're sort of like, it's not all incredibly kind of technical language or it doesn't require no. sort of previous specialization to to access some of the sort of the biggest ideas that have shaped our world. No, and people often say to me, how do I pick the ones that I talk about in the podcast? And essentially because I try and it's easier to, to talk if you think it's a kind of story. And I try and find mm-hmm. the stories in the books, but the books are themselves pieces of storytelling. I mean, Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. when I went back to read Wollstonecraft, I was completely gripped by the immediacy of it. There's a kind of, there's, there's an authenticity to it, which is a million miles away from what you might think of as sort of academic work of political philosophy. Tocqueville, it's a sort of travelogue in a way. He's, mm-hmm. he's telling a story. The Communist Manifesto was written so quickly that it has a kind of energy. Same actually Gandhi and Hind Swaraj. Yeah. These things are not sort of stewed over long gestated pieces of academic writing they're often immediate leviathan wasn't immediate but leviathan is a grand work of art but they have a quality in the writing i hope i think almost all of them that is not what you might expect when you think of political Mm. philosophy not least because they're not just works of political philosophy they're stories they're pieces of polemic um, some of them are funny. I mean, there's humour yeah, in some of yeah, these yeah. things. Um, it's not what you get from a contemporary academic journal. So <laughs> people shouldn't think that they're being asked to go to that. What they're being asked to go to are pieces of writing that live. Um, and I think they live because mm. you know, if it's possible to tell a story about a piece of writing, that almost certainly means it's not my story. There's a story in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that uh, you do turn the second series into a into a book as well because I thought that was sort of equally fascinating as the as the the first and uh you're perfectly welcome to veto this question but is there going to be a a third yeah so I, I hope so it's you know, it was a lockdown thing because um apart from anything else like a lot of people I had a bit more time than I normally mm-hmm. have and it, it does take <laughs> some time but what I would like to do for the third series is actually do it about works of fiction of different kinds because there mm. are lots of great uh works of fiction that have extraordinary things to say about politics so in a way it's to take the next step and so whether it's sort of Gulliver's Travels or mm-hmm. or Middlemarch or some of the great 20th century political novels um, that's the hope I don't know when I'm going to do it mm-hmm. but I would love to try that's... and do that because in a way then the stories are there but I also think 
it's just not the case that all of the most interesting writing about politics is in what we would call works of the history of political thought. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think with that one, I would start with Shakespeare and Coriolanus and take it from there. Oh God! Well, I, I'm sold. <laughs> I do. Uh, I do hope it happens. Um, Confronting Leviathan is, of course, available in the Shakespeare and Company uh, bookstore, both in store and online, or your local neighbourhood independent bookstore, wherever uh, wherever that may be. Uh, all that remains for me to say is, uh, David Runciman, thank you so so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Freiman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading and thanks again for listening.